0: Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, editor-at-large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Aspiring writers and illustrators of all ages, this episode is for you. Maybe you keep a running list on your notes app of book ideas, possible titles, and first lines. Maybe you have a sketchbook in the bottom of your drawer. But where do you go from there? Allie Carter and Raina Telgemeier are here with answers. They'll talk about their new books, which aim to help creators transfer their ideas to the page. First, we'll hear from Allie Carter, author of the beloved best-selling YA series Gallagher Girls, Heist Society, and Embassy Row. Her new book, Dear Allie, How Do I Write a Book, is filled with advice for aspiring writers from Allie, of course, as well as dozens of other best-selling YA authors. Later on, We'll talk with Raina Telgemeier, creator of the award-winning, best-selling graphic novels, Smile, Drama, Ghosts, and Sisters. She'll be talking with us about her new book, Share Your Smile, an interactive journal to help you jumpstart your graphic novel. First, here's Allie. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for joining us. So tell us about Dear Allie. How do you write a book?
1: Well, you know, I've I've been writing now off and on since I was a kid. And I know that this is something that so many kids start to get into. And so for years now, I've written up little things and put them on my blog or posted them elsewhere. And I get asked writing related questions all the time when I'm on tour stops or doing book festivals or things. And I frequently thought, you know, I should just put all of those things in one place and maybe put them up as an ebook or something. But I was actually doing the Houston Tween Reads Festival, which is a great book festival put on by the Blue Willow Bookshop in Houston, Texas. And it was all middle school kids. So probably most of the kids there were 11 to 13. And the very first question at every single panel that we had that day was, I'm working on my first novel, Do You Have Any Advice?, and I realized, okay, this is something I have to actually get off my rear end and do because these kids really are taking this very, very seriously. And I knew that an ebook, while that would be nice, it wouldn't really serve the needs of these kids. Because these kids, they need to first of all be able to buy it in their scholastic book fair. And then they need it to be something that they can highlight and dog ear and you know write in and draw in and just really make their own because it's gonna, it's not a book, it's a textbook. And I really wanted to
0: provide that for kids out there. You more than delivered. Um, I don't know if you found this with the kids, but certainly with adults, including myself, I think pop culture often gives us the notion that that writers just sit down and the novel comes streaming out. And the next thing you know, the book is published. It's an instant bestseller. But Dear Ali tells us that that isn't typically the case. Uh, How do you hope young readers will use the book not only as a writing guide, but as a tool for changing their perceptions of writing?
1: I think that's a really, really good point and an excellent question. You know, I watch a lot of Hallmark movies and and, and I enjoy them because, you know, they're they're just a lot of fun. But, you know, that one of the Careers that they love to explore is uh, heroes or heroines were authors, and it's always some sort of snowy montage with the old-fashioned typewriter, and they pull a piece of paper out and they wad it up and they throw it at the fire, and then you know you cut to the huge stack of paper to show that they've been writing for a long time, but really it's only been like a day and a half, and then they have their novel, and so I wanted to show something that was not only realistic to what writing actually is. But I wanted to show that every writer has a different process. And that was one of the things that I felt most passionately about that I didn't want to do this if I couldn't have other authors also taking part. Because my process is different from Marie Lou's process, which is different from Alan Bratz's process, which is different from Danielle Clayton's process. You know, we all do this very, very differently. And for some people, it might take two years to do a first draft, and that first draft might be pretty close to a finished product. Or you may work like I work, where it takes me about six weeks to do a first draft, and it is utter and complete garbage, and you have to spend the next year fixing it. And so it doesn't really matter how you do this. You just have to figure out how your process is going to work.
0: And as you say, your process might vary from book to book, but I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the process one of your books delve into what you really mean by process because it's a, a complex term that has many components.
1: It is, and it's going to mean something totally different to different people because we all do this in very different ways. Um, my process is: I usually start obviously with some kind of idea. And maybe that idea is about a character, or maybe it's about a plot, or maybe it's about a world. Um, So, for example, my most recent novel is Not If I Save You First, which is about a girl whose father was a Secret Service agent. Her best friend was the president's son. Um, She leaves D.C. and moves to the wilds of Alaska. And she's there for six years when the president's son comes back. And he immediately is kidnapped. And she's the only person who can save him. And so that idea came to me when I was on an Alaskan cruise, and I was looking out over the wilderness in the middle of the night, and I saw one light burning in the distance. And I thought, what if something bad happened there, you know, where there's no 911, there's no health, there's no authorities. And so that's where, not if I say you first sort of originated from. And I, so I take that, that notion of kids lost in, in the wilds of Alaska, and I let that sort of ruminate in my mind for a while. And then I start asking, but why would he be kidnapped? And who would the kidnapper be? And what does the kidnapper want? And why can't, why can't my heroine just turn around and go get help? And you ask all of these things. And then I go through the process of writing what is essentially just an incredibly detailed outline. And then I go through the process of taking that outline and writing a very, very, very rough first draft. And then at that point, I usually share it with an editor because I'm fortunate that I'm in that position that I can do that. Um, and I'm going to come back and I'm going to do a really detailed second draft and maybe a detailed third draft and maybe a line edit and, and all, you know, maybe that whole process takes at least a year usually. And so that's, that is my process, but you ask another author and they're going to be like, Oh no, I don't write a word until I know exactly what's going to happen in the book. Or yeah, I, I don't know anything when I sit down, I just sit down one day and start writing. And the process that you personally use to go from nothing to finished book, and that's going to vary person to person. It's going to vary book to book. The way I do this now is vastly different than it did when I was writing my first book. And um, I want kids out there or, or young adults or adults or anybody who's sitting down to write their first book or their second book, or just try to you know, hone up and, and maybe learn something from some other people That's one thing that I want you to keep in mind is there's no right way to do this. And there's certainly no wrong way to do this. You just have to figure out the way that works for you.
0: But I do love one of your rules about the jacket copy, writing the jacket copy first. I think that's great. (laughs) Could you talk about that and how you came on to that little tip?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that actually goes back to the the dark days of my life and career. Most authors, if you are ever hanging around like a green room at a book festival or something, you'll hear us all start to bemoan sequels and how very, very, very challenging a sequel can be. Not always, not for everybody, not for every series. But in my case, sequels are always pretty difficult. And especially when I was working on the sequel to my first Gallagher Girls book. So I had written, I'd tell you I love you, but then I'd have to kill you. It came out very, very quickly. Um, My publisher at the time really crashed that release because we wanted to get it out as soon as possible. And then I had to delve right into writing book two. And so for book two, I knew I had what I would call a premise for the book. So book one is about a boarding school for girl spies. And there's a kind of a throwaway line in the book where she says something about uh, everybody. There's a rumor that there's a top secret boys school in Maine. And, you know, because that's what a t- top secret girls boarding school for spies, they would wonder, where are the boys? And so my editor and I both always loved that line. And so we were like, maybe for book two, we should do something with the top secret boys school. And I was like, yes, I can totally do that. So I would write and I would write and I would write and I would get boys from the boys school to the Gallagher Academy and then nothing just apps. I had no idea what had to happen next. And I spun my wheels with that for over a year. I, I actually ended up probably writing that book three different times with three totally different plots because I had a premise for the book, but I didn't have a plot for the book. I didn't know what my character wanted and I didn't know what was standing in her way. And so that was when I realized that I never again want to start a book that I don't have. I don't need to know every, every plot point. I don't need to know exactly how the climax is going to play out. I don't need to know what the ending shot is. I don't need to know all of that, but I have to know what goes on the back of the book because that is, that is more than just a mark piece of marketing for me. That is also a test for me. That if I can boil down my plot and boil down the central conflict enough to write three paragraphs about it and put it on the back of the book, then I, then I can actually write a book. It helps you to really put it on paper. In the abstract, I knew exactly what the book was, but I couldn't have sat down and written the back cover copy to save my life. So I actually didn't know what the book was about. And unfortunately for my process, sometimes I have to actually try to write the book to figure out what I don't know. And I really hate that about my process, but you don't get to pick your process. So that's what I'm stuck with.
0: Right. Although you are a plotter versus a pantser. Is that right? Right. <laughs>
1: Probably. like I I like to consider myself a hybrid because I will throw a whole plan away if I have to. If I get in there and I'm like, oh, no, I don't like this thing that I spent six months plotting out here. Let's just toss this in the garbage and start from scratch. I will 100% do that. But it is easier, I think. And I can write a lot faster if I have a general sense of where I'm going, that I don't know all the little details. So I like to say it's kind of like a road trip where I know I'm going from New York to Los Angeles. And along the way, I want to stop in St. Louis and see the Arch. And I want to play blackjack in Vegas. And I want to see the Grand Canyon. But I don't know like what highways I'm going to take. I don't know what little, little roadside diners I might stop at. You know, There's a lot of stuff that I don't know along the way when I start. And, and I, I like that because I like to surprise myself. And I feel like if I'm, if I know every little thing that's going to happen, a lot of times I'll get bored in the writing process.
0: That's part of the fun. It's an adventure for you, but why is it so important to inspire young writers and creators?
1: Well, I think for me, especially with writing this, it's, it's not even so much that I wanted to inspire them, but they're already inspired. You know, kids, kids are kind of, you know, like their own energy source. They, they are self inspiring in so many ways. They just don't know what to do with it. And so I, I hear from kids all the time that, you know, Oh, I've, I've started six different books, but none of them are longer than 20 pages. Or I I can't decide I've got these 14 different ideas and which one should I pick? And, you know, they're constantly reading. They're constantly taking in um, television and movies and Netflix and video games and graphic novels and and story and content is coming at them from all directions. And so the ones who are kind of geared this way, they're there. They're ready to go. They're ready to write. But they, they just don't know how. They don't know what the logistics are like. And that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this particular conceit for the book. And, you know, Dear Allie isn't necessarily because it's it's my book, but because all of the things that we cover in the book are real questions that teenagers asked us. And, you know, they're, Dear Allie, I um, can't decide who the villain of my book is. Or Dear Allie, what happens when you run out of plot after about page 20? Or, you know, everything in there is a question that a real kid had. And I wanted to do that that way because they, they know what they need. And I didn't want to spend a lot of time talking about, you know, theory and things. Um, I wanted, I wanted this book to be as useful as possible and for them to be able to just get in there and take exactly what they needed.
0: Well, that is great to hear. I, I love though, the advice your own mom gave to you when you were in middle school and frustrated with your first draft. She said, you should never compare your first draft to someone else's finished draft. I think in your case, it was To Kill a Mockingbird, which yeah.
1: was great advice. <laughs> yes, it was very, very good advice. So my mom is an English teacher. She's a speech teacher. She's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And and that's that's advice I think of almost on a daily basis. And what's interesting is now the books I'm comparing my new book against isn't aren't, you know, classic literature or they're not big bestsellers, they're actually my last book. So as I work on a book, I, and I always have this sort of case of amnesia, where I'm like, never has a book been this hard. I, you know, the last book was so easy. I knew exactly what I was writing. I wrote it so fast. I never had a doubt. And I'll tell my friends that and they'll be like, are you kidding me? Have you forgotten the time we were in Florida and, you know, you cried on the couch for 10 minutes and like, oh no, oh, that did happen, didn't it? Oh, okay. (laughs) I guess I forgot that. As I work on the books, I just steadily improve, you know, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And it's very easy to forget that that finished draft didn't look like that initially. And so sometimes I will actually go back if I'm really struggling with a book. And I'll read an earlier draft of one of the ones that I think was so perfect. And i like, oh, I forgot about the whole organ harvesting subplot. Yeah, that was really stupid. I'm so glad David made me cut that. <laughs> and, and because it's, I, I do, I totally block out all the hard parts and, and the ways that I was challenged the first time around.
0: Uh-huh. That's interesting. Um, you've said now that kids are, they're reading a ton, they're reading all different genres, but that actually is such important advice you give for a writer that you have to read a lot. And also that you read like a writer. Could you talk about what you mean by that, reading like a writer?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is, it's one of the hardest things to try to describe what to do, but it might also be the most important because you really have to start not just getting lost in the story and trying to predict what's going to happen or what your favorite parts were or what your favorite line was or what your prettiest piece of description was. But you've got to really take things apart and look under the hood and see, okay, this line right here, what does it accomplish? The author, you know, layered in something here that actually isn't important for another 150 pages, but look how that seed was planted there. Start with a spiral bound notebook and a highlighter, and a pen, and just literally write everything to them, and you'll start recognizing those patterns, and you'll start saying, okay, so major characters are usually introduced before this point. Okay, good to know, and, and I think it really helps, or at least that's how I talk, because I, you know, my, my educational background is in agricultural economics. I am definitely not trained in doing any of this, um, so I very much had to teach myself, And um, kids out there, readers out there, you can teach yourselves too.
0: Gosh, that is so inspiring. You also give such great advice on writing characters so that they feel like actual people. Are there any techniques that you follow when you're really trying to nail down human behavior?
1: Oh, I think the key for me for characters, and again, your mileage may vary, um, is just to know that you have as many drafts as you need to get them right. My characters are never very good in the first or second draft. It, or they, they're just not very detailed. And, you know, they might, their, their name may change a half dozen times. Their hair color, eye color, you know, that's the kind of stuff I don't really pay a ton of attention to. Um, I'm trying more to work out their interplay with each other and who these characters are to each other and what they bring to the story overall and, you know, what their arcs should be. Um, so, it really takes me three or four or five drafts for a character to, what I say, show up. So, I may be on draft three and tell a friend, my, I'm really struggling with my book because my characters haven't shown up yet. It's not that there's a character that I haven't written yet or it hasn't made it on the page. It's just that there are either things about them that I know that I haven't actually gotten on the page or things about them that I'm still figuring out.
0: That is so fascinating, Allie. It really explains why your characters are so compelling. Well, Allie, what a pleasure to talk with you. Congratulations on this amazing book. It's a service and a joy. Oh,
1: thank you, Suzanne. Well, I hope it provides something for everyone.
0: As Allie explained, every writer or creator has a very different process. There's no one right way. Here to offer another perspective And tell us about her new interactive journal, Share Your Smile, is Raina Telgemeier. Hi, Raina. Welcome to the program. Tell us about Share Your Smile and the inspiration behind it. Share Your Smile
2: is an interactive journal for kids who want to learn to make comics and tell their own stories. So it's a combination of behind-the-scenes peeks into my working process, how I make my comics, how I build up my story ideas, and then um, kind of prompts for kids to
0: write their own stories and then draw them. That's so terrific. I I read the book myself, and I'm ready to write a comic, too. All right. (laughs) Uh, How did you decide which elements from your own creative process to include in the book?
2: So I've been doing talks at schools and libraries for about a dozen years. And when I do those, my favorite part is always the Q&A, which is after I've given my canned talk, I get to sit and just chat with the kids and they ask me questions. And I love that candid exchange between us. So a lot of the, the prompts from this book and the ideas actually came straight from those Q&A sessions, the kinds of things kids want to know. How do you get your ideas and how do you start drawing comics and what are the, you know, the building blocks and what do you do when you have uh, a writing, a writer's block experience? And so a lot of what's in Share Your Smile comes from that.
0: That is a question that I had. I know everyone loves to have written, but the actual (laughs) writing process is rarely easy. So I wondered if you had thoughts, how do you keep going when you feel stuck or the words just aren't flowing? I mean, this happens to everybody. It certainly happens
2: to me. Um, I've had books that pour out of me like water, where I sit down and a few weeks later, I have a completed manuscript for something that does not happen every time. <laughs> Sometimes there's a lot of stopping and starting, trying to figure out who the characters are, what their motivations are, and, and how the story itself is going to unfold. And it's a process, and it's a process that should get easier over time, but it doesn't necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have a few tricks up my sleeve, and those include taking a break. <laughs> you know, I, I do have deadlines, but I am able to decide when I need little bit of space. And so I live in Berkeley, California, which is near the water. It's near the hills. It's near the forests. And so I'm able to kind of get myself out and into nature when I need to. And I have two cats now, so I'm able to sit and just hang out with my cats. And that's a very nice way to decompress. So I have, I have outlets for, um, space for thought being in those places always makes me think, makes me think about the bigger world. It makes me think about how I'm feeling. Um, and so getting, getting away for a little while, as long as you then bring yourself back to the desk. I think watching movies and watching plays, listening to music, reading other books, it just gets your brain going. It just And for me, sometimes it makes me angry in a way that's really <laughs> motivating when I read something that's so good, like another comic, and I think, ah, oh, this is so good. I'm so mad that this person made something so great. I want to make that thing too. I want to make something as great as this thing I just consumed. So I think that's part of my competitive spirit. I think that's part of my my storytelling. And honestly, like I'm friends with a lot of the people who I think are the most talented human beings in the world. And so being able to talk to them and get into their heads a little bit, it's like I'm asking them the questions that people always ask me. And when their answers differ from mine, it's, it's surprising. And sometimes the light bulb comes on. Important thing is just getting back to it and uh, always, always making space for that creativity to come out.
0: Right. It is, I mean, so important. And what you've done is, is absolute magic. But I wondered how having a creative outlet when you were a child, when you were growing up and facing some challenges, how that helped you and what role that played in your life?
2: It was absolutely essential. And I think I identify as an introvert. So I I get my energy from being alone, even though I love people and I love spending time with people. The process I described of going out into nature or hanging out with my cats kind of feeds that, that solitary part of me. And so does drawing. And that's always been the case. So after a long day at school, I would go home and I would draw. Before I did my homework, before I watched cartoons, before I ate a snack or dinner, I had to draw. And when I was nine years old, I discovered comics in the newspaper and I fell in love with them. And all of my drawings turned into drawings with word balloons and characters with dialogue between them. And so uh, every day I would I would draw a comic about my day. And I did that from age 11 all the way to age 25. It was like writing in a diary. It was just my way to kind of process the day and, and to decompress and to get my feelings out of my own head and onto a piece of paper. And then I could put that piece of paper away and not think about it anymore. But I found that going back to those papers and to those journals a few weeks later, a few years later, what have you, was a really nice way to kind of look back and see what I had been through and then be able to contextualize it and think about how I had changed since then or what I had learned. And, and I mean, I I started doing this at like age 11. (laughs) so I have years and years of my own writing and my own thoughts. And I, I read them continuously through my teenage years. And it was so Wonderful. And I I think I was craving that voice from an outside source, but I wasn't getting it. So I had to create my own. And this this ties in perfectly with what I do now. I mean, I was doing this just for myself. I didn't show these these journals or these comics to people. They were just for me. But they've had 100% of an impact on the work that I've done as an adult.
0: And on the young people whose lives you touch. That's really something (laughs) so so very true. Why is it so important for kids to share their own stories and to have those creative outlets?
2: I mean, to me, those two things aren't always connected. A creative outlet is just a way to decompress for me. So drawing, singing, dancing, it's it's just taking that energy and, and putting it into something else. But as far as sharing that with other people, it's a wonderful way to make connections and to not feel so alone. And I'm a kid who who suffered from anxiety, and it's something I'm still kind of dealing with in my adult life. And I try and put that onto the page. And when we talk about you know, my, my readers and and what they get out of my work, I think they are seeing somebody who feels the way that they do. And I think that's what's so amazing about art. And being able to look at somebody else's art and go, okay, I get what's going on inside that person's head. I feel like they understand. So when you share your own work with others, when you share your passion with other people, it's just like a natural part of what happens.
0: You incorporate a lot of humor though, into your stories, even when they're dramatic or scary. Um, What what role does laughter play for you? And why, you know, how does it even, (laughs) how is it therapeutic? It's amazing, right?
2: Like I, was a kid who was anxious, but I read comic strips and they made me laugh. And sometimes they made me laugh. And afterwards I would start to think about what was being said through humor. So I think that humor is a great conduit for more introspective ideas and sometimes for sadness and anger. And it's it's also just a form of stress release. And I've been reading a lot about the stress response cycle lately, which is rooted in like the fight or flight Tendencies that we took from our ancestors and a lion's chasing you. And you have to outrun the lion before you feel better and before you feel you've gotten through that experience. And so I think laughter does something similar where you are being chased by thoughts and ideas and and outside noise. But if you can look at it and realize that it's funny or that it's irreverent or that it's just, you know, like ways to thir- turn things on their head and and see them for the humor that is there. You feel so much better afterwards. And so so listening to humor podcasts and watching movies and watching funny videos on YouTube, it's just, it's what we all do. It's what we all love to do. Everybody loves to laugh. And sometimes when you laugh with other people, you also see that spark of understanding between yourselves. And I've seen so many comedy shows about really brutal topics where everybody cracks up and then afterwards they're like, uh yeah. Mm. So it's, it's a really powerful tool. Um, especially when it's used responsibly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, when I, when I talk to kids, I want to make them feel comfortable. I want to hear them tell jokes. I want to hear them tell funny stories, but that humor can come from everywhere including sad
0: and not funny things. We're finding that with graphic novels and perhaps that's an explanation, one explanation for their incredible popularity. You talk with kids all over the country, as you said, what is your top advice? What do you give, what do you say to kids who ask you, you know, how can I draw like you? How can I create a book like you?
2: They they certainly want to know. They want me to tell them how to do what I do and be who I am. And I I have to tell them, like, be yourself for starters. (laughs) You know, tell your own stories and and create the way that you want to create. But they always want to know, how did you get so good at drawing? And I say, well, I've been practicing for 40 years. And you get better the more you do something. But also, I started small. I didn't start out making long-form graphic novels. I started by writing a comic about my day. And that was usually just a handful of panels on a page. They didn't necessarily even connect. They weren't stories. They were just little snapshots. And so that's something anybody can do is pick up a pen and some paper and write a snapshot of two characters talking or two characters walking through a neighborhood or two characters, you know, flying a rocket ship into space. It doesn't really matter. Just moments of dialogue and settings and characters. Those are really the elements you need. And uh, my first comics were terrible. They're not funny. They're not well drawn. They look like somebody who hadn't been practicing for very long, but now they look like somebody who has been practicing for a while. So start small. That's my my number one tip and keep going.
0: I think I also read that you write out the dialogue before you create the speech balloon that it has to fit into. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I, I always say like if you're if you're drawing a comic and you know that there's two characters talking and that you want to draw both of those characters in the picture, maybe try writing the words into the the panel first, sketch them in, and then draw the balloon around them, and then you'll know how much space you have left over for everything else. And it's it's an interplay between the two. So sometimes you've got a lot of dialogue in a panel. Maybe turn that into two panels. And, you know, this is why doing a little bit of planning ahead of time, doing things lightly in pencil, sketching them out, having a fresh piece of paper next to it that you can draw the more final version of your comic on is really helpful. And that's that's also a huge part of my process is kind of working out all of the details and all the beats before I start the final art.
0: So you do that. You have the whole thing. But when you sit down to write a graphic novel, do you sketch out everything immediately or do you go page by page in a way
2: I work in thumbnails and that means that I am sketching as I'm writing so I am drawing a big rectangle on the left side of my paper and another one on the right side of the paper that represents two facing pages and then I'm thinking about what I want to say and then I'm I'm drawing in boxes and writing in the dialogue and drawing a super quick sketch of character it's just like a stick figure um I do that for the whole book so my my brain does not process words and pictures separately it processes them together because so much of comics is actually about the quiet space in between what's being said and how characters are reacting to things and sometimes they react by just staring at the other person who's talking or by uh you know tripping over something and and falling on their face <laughs> and it's it's kind of like a combination of acting, directing, writing, taking photographs. It's all of those things
0: at once. It's really so fascinating to hear. It's
2: really hard to talk about too. It's so much easier to show people what I mean when I say this. But that's what Share Your Smile is for. It's to be able to show as well as telling.
0: Yes, a book is amazing. So, Raina, your next graphic novel, Guts, is coming out in the fall, and you offer a sneak preview at the end of Share Your Smile. I wondered if you could give us a hint about what to expect.
2: It's so hard to talk about it in a way that's not spoilery, but I will say that Guts is about fear and about anxiety and about facing those things. So like I mentioned before, I was a kid who had a lot of anxiety. I was worried a lot. I was nervous. I had phobias and my parents sent me to therapy to try and deal with those things. And therapy is pretty scary too. But uh, you learn a lot from it. And I've certainly learned a lot from therapy. And it's not a book that's trying to shove this all down your throat. Like you should go to therapy and you should. It's it's more just putting it all on the page and saying, these are my fears. This is how it feels to be afraid. This is what kinds of things made me scared. And they're not things I've ever really wanted to talk about before because they're embarrassing. They seem so silly and trivial. But I think every person has something that upsets them, that bothers them. And maybe they don't want to talk about it, but all kind of circles back to saying that if you are able to talk about things and if you're able to share your story with others, they might feel less alone too. So that's my goal here is just to kind of break down the stigmas and the stereotypes and show people that it's okay to face your fears.
0: Well done, Reina. Brava. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. What a delightful conversation. I learned so much and I know that our listeners will Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to Ali and Raina for joining me. And thank you for listening. I hope you've been inspired to start sharing your story. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrizula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberle. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.